So about a little over a year ago when I would go to tuck Shay into bed, I don't think she remembers this. She's five now, by the way. She turned five on Thursday. Very big. Spencer turned ten. It's weird to think Spencer will never be single digits again. Like, oh, it's killing me. A little over a year ago, uh, we were living in Birmingham, and I would go to tuck Shay into bed, and she was in this phase where she was insisting on sleeping with her little pink Bible, this little Bible that my mother gave her when she was born. It's about yay big, and it has her name um, engraved on the outside. Shay was in her third year somewhere, and she couldn't read, but it was this really cute thing at night, these chubby little fingers, right, wrapped around this pink Bible. She'd open it up and be holding it. Her eyes would be moving across. Most of the time, it'd be upside down and all of that kind of stuff, and there she was doing something with this Bible. And there are plenty of people who might not be as cute as Shay, obviously, (laughs) um, but who treat the Bible like Shay did. They have this innocent and endearing reverence for Scripture, but it's a book on a pedestal kind of view. It's an object to be honored, but you don't really understand it. You don't really understand what it has to do with you or how it works with power in your life or in your family or in your, your particular area of work, your vocation. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who, instead of being like Shay, this kind of book on the pedestal view of the Bible, they're closer to, in my mind, this philosopher from the 19th century in Germany named Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche famously described truth. This is his famous phrase. He said, truth is a mobile army of metaphors. Now, he's saying a lot there, but part of what he's saying is that the only universal, constant, objective, overarching truth is our drive and desire for power. And that anytime somebody claims something is true or morally right or wrong or good or bad, what they're really just doing is trying to control you and protect their vested interest. Now, you may not know Nietzsche or be familiar with his works or even give a rip about this dead philosopher, but his ideas fill the cultural air that we breathe And there are plenty of people who have a deep suspicion of religion and big companies and claims for truth and claims for right and wrong. And whether it's Dan Brown writing The Da Vinci Code or Richard Dawkins in the kind of new and avant-garde atheism, there are people with this real suspicion that whenever the church appeals to the Bible, What is really going on, whenever the church or somebody um, from the church says that behavior is right or that behavior is wrong or this is good or this is bad, whenever there's an appeal made by the church, there's a whole huge number of people in our culture who deep in their guts, whether they articulate it or not, they have this sense that all that's happening is a group of people trying to protect the vested interests, trying to protect their own place in life and way of living. In our passage from 1 Corinthians that Luther read to us, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, listen to what Paul says. I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, 
that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Now, Paul, when he uses that phrase, what is written, he always is talking about Scripture. It's a code word for him. It's a a cliche for him. In fact, six times in this letter, he's already quoted the Old Testament. In chapter 1, verse 19, and then again in verse 31, and then in chapter 2, verse 9, and then again in verse 16, and then in chapter 3, he quotes the Old Testament in verse, both verses 19 and 20. And, and every time Paul quotes the Old Testament, it's important for us, for the sake of, uh, of, of this morning, it's important to realize two things. First of all, when Paul quotes the Old Testament, stuff written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before he's writing to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago. Whenever Paul quotes the Old Testament, he always has the attitude that this is God's word directly addressing not the ancient Israelites, but the present-day Corinthians. Now, this is a weird gig. Anytime he quotes the Old Testament where somebody was saying something to somebody that was dead a long time ago. The attitude surrounding his quote is always that this is the living God directly speaking to people alive today. That it is a present, active, living address of God. And in fact, it's not just Paul and the Corinthians. It's all of the the church fathers after that. And it's, it's the church throughout history. Whenever the church encounters Scripture, the church has always had the attitude that Scripture is the place where God speaks. That Scripture is the place where we can expect to hear the voice of God. Second thing, when Paul quotes the Old Testament and when he says in chapter 4, verse 6, I'm doing all of this so that you do not go beyond what is written. The second thing about that that we need to see is that for Paul and for the Christians in Corinth and indeed for the church throughout history, there is an attitude about Scripture, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, that it carries the authority of God. It's a prejudgment it's a presupposition it's a prior it's an attitude that's brought to this number one that in scripture you can expect to hear the voice of god and that scripture itself carries the authority of god a theologian by the name of john calvin summed up the basic attitude i'm talking about when he wrote god's will is to speak to us by the mouths of apostles and prophets. Talking about the Old and the New Testament. Calvin says, their mouths are to us the mouth of God. That's been the attitude of the church. Whether we agree with it or disagree with it, that is the attitude of the church throughout time and history. Another way to put it is that what Scripture says, God says. Now, I'm not saying anybody's interpretation of Scripture. I'm not at all getting into how do we know what God is actually saying through Scripture. Is he telling us to drink Kool-Aid and kill ourselves? I'm not talking about 
how to hear God best. I'm just talking about the larger attitude, what Scripture says, God says. Now, in the message this morning, I I want us to step back and to do something. For about 10 or 11 weeks now, we've been marching our way verse by verse through 1 Corinthians. And all along the way, when the Old Testament is quoted, I've wanted to take time out and say, look what's going on here. And so this morning, I'm going to do that. This morning, instead of preaching all of chapter 4, which was the original plan when I mapped out the sermon series um, months ago, instead of doing that, I want us to kind of hit pause and step back and notice how Scripture itself is using Scripture, how Paul is reacting to Old Testament and how it's working in the life of the church. Because throughout this series, we've been talking about what do we need to do in order to be a healthy church? I mean, what is God saying to us, the church of the incarnation, as he's calling us into being? What does it mean for us to be healthy? Now, I'm not going to answer all of the challenges from Nietzsche or Dan Brown or Richard Dawkins or any of that. There are plans in the work that we're going to do something in the future where I'm going to try to address their very serious accusations of Scripture. But this morning, I just want to put pause and and teach how the Bible functions with authority today. And how in light of that, we can honor that authority in our church as a whole and in our lives as individuals. So first of all, if there's a Bible near you, if you have a Bible, find Isaiah chapter 55, this passage that Donna read to us, Isaiah 55. And look with me at verse 10. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth fruit and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now here, I want you to see something. Here is an example in Scripture of Scripture itself pointing away from itself. Verse 11, it shall accomplish that which I purpose. Part of what this shows us is that the authority of Scripture is shorthand for God working powerfully through Scripture to bring about his kingdom. In fact, just listen to another verse from another part of the Bible. We're going to come stay there in Isaiah. We're going to come back. But listen to this verse. I'm going to try to unpack what I'm saying here. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. This is in the book of Romans. But what we see here is something foundational for thinking responsibly about the authority of Scripture. And it's this. All authority is from God. And the authority of Scripture is, the, is God's authority exercised through Scripture. It's really important to keep this straight so that we don't end up worshiping this book. Now, back in Isaiah chapter 55, look at verse 12. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. This is an image of human beings being reconciled to God. And the next image 
is of all of creation being reconciled to God, right? The mountains and the hills shall before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Now what we see in these verses is that scripture is a vehicle God uses to accomplish his larger purpose. And what is his purpose? Shalom. This thing we've talked about time and time again. It's, it's a life of flourishing and prospering in our relationships with God, with each other, and with creation. It's that triangle of God, humans, and creation. It's, it's all of that triangle flourishing in all of the relationships between one another. It's this, it's this thriving and luxuriant image This is God's purpose. This is what God is doing in the world. And we see it throughout the Bible. It's what we're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's shalom, God's kingdom coming to birth on earth as it is in heaven. The renewal of every square inch of creation. And scripture is a critical vehicle God uses to bring about his kingdom. That's the the incredible paradox of Isaiah 55 his wor- one minute he's talking about his word going out the next minute he's talking about creation being renewed see scripture is a vehicle through which God works with authority and power to heal and to bring shalom now in the remainder of the message what, I, what I'm going to do is talk about how if that is the case and that is an awesome and weighty idea that the very power and authority of God goes through his word. Now, he could have set it up in a thousand different ways, but he chose to set it up that way. Now, what I want to do for the rest of this message is talk about, since that's true, since God works with authority and power through his word, how can we treat the word of God so that that power and authority works in our life? Because I want shalom in my life. I want to... Be luxur- I want to thrive in my relationship with myself and with others in creation. I want this land to be healed. I want my neighbors to be healed and at peace. I, I, so if God's word is a primary way, it's, a, it's the primary vehicle that God is exercising his authority through, how can I treat it in such a way that that occurs? How can I let scripture have its powerfully transformative effect in my life? calling me, shaping me for his kingdom. Two things for the rest of the message. Two things. First of all, in order to let scripture have its way with us, shorthand for in order to let God have his way with us through scripture, the first issue is the primary issue. We need to deeply and regularly encounter scripture in worship. Let me show you what I mean. When I say that we need to deeply and regularly encounter scripture in worship, what I'm saying is that scripture's native home is a worship service. Look in Luke chapter 4, this passage from the Gospels that I read. Here we see Jesus Christ himself, which is the word of God, the word itself in flesh. We see that he announces his mission in life 
for the very first time. This is called the Nazarene Manifesto or his inaugural sermon. This is the sermon where he says, this is who I am. This is why I exist. This is what I'm about. And where does he do it? In the context of a worship service. Here we find Jesus announcing the mission of his life in the midst of a worship service on the Sabbath. And we see in verse 16 that attending worship on the Sabbath was, it says, his custom. Now, what's going on is that Jesus is in the worship service. He receives the scroll. He he reads the appointed passage for the day. It's from Isaiah. And then look in verse 20. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, that's just typical first century Jewish synagogue worship. You stand to read, then the person interpreting and teaching sits down. That's their cultural way. And from this passage and from a host of other passages and a lot of archaeological evidence and historical evidence, we know what first century worship services looked like. We know what that service looked like. We know that week after week after week, Jesus did something very much like we're doing here. It involved reading scripture, praying, reciting creedal beliefs in God, things that summed up the basic view of God in the world, interpreting scripture, collecting money, This was basic synagogue worship. But what I want you to see and what you cannot overestimate is that scripture was read in the context of a worship service. Now, if you have a Bible, look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. In another part of the Bible, Paul is writing to the Christians in Galatia, and he says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? We could go on and on. In fact, turn, i just show you one other passage. Go to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, the first chapter of the last book of the Bible. Revelation, right before the maps, if you're looking for it. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Now, there are so many passages that when you start writing all these down, they all constellate around this idea that Scripture was originally and primarily engaged with in the context of public worship. And we could do a lot of passages in the Old Testament to show that. I'm not going to do all of that now. In in a way, I'm just asking you to trust me that that's where all of these passages are pointing. What we're seeing is that woven throughout the Bible, like a golden thread, is that hearing Scripture read and interpreted in a worship service is the primary way God's people have engaged with Scripture throughout time. 
as a church, we need to learn how to more deeply engage with Christ through Scripture in the worship service. Look in your worship guide on page 4. Right before we get to the part of the service where we have Scripture readings, we stop and we remind each other of something. I say to you, the Lord be with you. And you say back, and also with you. You see, when we get to this part of the service where Scripture is held up, don't look at this as warm-up for the sermon. Don't even look at this as, oh, I need to learn something. That's secondary. You can look at it that way, but make that ancillary. Make that secondary. The Catholic Church has a really important document that came out of Vatican II called the Constitution on Sacred Liturgy. And in that document, we hit the nail on the head. We, we're all Christians, we're in this together. We hit the nail on the head. It says this, it is Christ himself who speaks to us when the Holy Scriptures are read in the church. So I'm watching Donna read, and I'm thinking of that quote by Calvin, and I'm thinking of what the Catholic Church is saying here, and I'm thinking of all these passages, and I'm thinking, yeah, that looks like Donna's mouth moving, but Christ is speaking to us. This is an incredible thing. When we get to this part of the service where Scripture is read, what I'm saying is we need to have an expectation and an anticipation that Christ is speaking. A listening heart filled with expectation and anticipation of God, of an encounter with Christ Himself. Not just with true data, not just with important information, but that Christ Himself, the living Christ, is walking among us and speaking To us, we need to have an expectation and anticipation that Christ himself in these moments when scripture is read and sung and prayed and interpreted, that Christ himself is in immediate and personal presence among us. Think about what you say at the end of each reading. Not the word of Donna, not the word even of Isaiah. The word of the Lord. And what's an appropriate response? Hot dog. That's, you know, my version. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for what? That the creator, living God of this universe is saying something to Rick. Thank you, God. That's amazing. Let let, let me encourage you that when you get to this part of the service, figure out how to do that. How to anticipate and expect. Now, for me, I don't follow along in my Bible. Because when I follow along in my Bible, my habit, is that I'm kind of just looking at these words. I like to look at the person talking or close my eyes and imagine that Christ himself is saying, and look, if Janelle was talking to me, I want to look at her. So for me, I'm not saying you have to do it. Some of you will be the exact opposite. It's easier for you to do this, to have an attitude of expectation and anticipation by following in a Bible. I'm I'm just saying figure out how to do it. Let, Let me just encourage you to work hard at this. To work hard at deeply engaging with God as the scripture is read and preached and taught and prayed in our worship service. And don't think that you can get the same thing staying at home, reading your Bible or watching church on TV 
This is different. This is the primary way that the church has encountered God through Scripture throughout time. So look, if you have to choose between losing your eyes or losing your ears, lose your eyes, you'd be better off hearing the word read in service than reading it at home by yourself if you have to pick. If that's not true, God was up a creek without a paddle until Gutenberg came along and invented the press and we spread literacy around. Right? I mean, 95-something percent of the people at the time of the New Testament were illiterate. Was God just waiting for the Enlightenment and widespread literacy? No. Maybe literacy has hurt us in some ways. And by the way, this is part of the reason that for centuries all over the world, Christians have given up their lives in order to get to church. I challenge you, don't give up on... Don't, don't, don't give up on this. Keep giving up your Sundays to be a part of worship. Now, I know this might sound self-serving, right? I mean, you could be some, have some Nietzschean view that really I'm just protecting my own vested interest because my salary comes out of the offerings or something like that, right? But our engagement with Scripture, when it comes to that, the undisputed priority throughout time and history is not personal, private reading, but public, humble reception in the context of a worship service. So that's the first thing we should do, to really let Scripture have its powerful effect as a dynamic force of God calling us and shaping us and transforming us. But, I keep saying that's the primary way, it's not the only way. Because your private engagement is important. It's just not primary. We need a greater and deeper private engagement with Scripture. This is the second thing we need to do in order to let Scripture have a really powerful work in our life. We need to privately and personally engage it. It, Look, even if you're not literate, you can do this, right? You can memorize and meditate and chew on all week. I had a guy in a church I was in one time, he hated to read. But all week long, he he would chew on the Scripture that was read in church on Sunday. He was engaging with it. If you're going to faithfully honor the authority of Scripture to really let it have its powerful effect in your life, then you need a deep, personal, private engagement with Scripture. When, when, it, when it comes to hearing Scripture in worship, like I said, that's the primary way, but it's not the only way. You need a daily time with Scripture. And, and look at it this way. Your daily time with Scripture is preparation for having the kind of heart this woman had in that picture. And it's also a continuation of what God says here. You see, this, it's like the top of the mountain is the public, but you've still got to prepare and you've got to come away from that. And it's your private engagement that's both preparation and continuation. Now, when it comes to reading the Bible, it's so important to remember something that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. You don't have to turn there. All Scripture is God-breathed. This idea that God breathed out and Scripture came. Part of what this means, that God has breathed out Scripture, is that Scripture is alive. Wherever we find the breath of God in the Bible, we find it producing life. Valley of dry bones, Eve in the garden... A number of times God breathes out and the effect is life. What it means to say that all Scripture is breathed by God is to say that it's alive. 
In other words, reading the Bible is different than reading Dostoevsky. It's not that this is a classic. Many people tend to treat the Bible as a classic. But reading the Bible is different than that. Scripture is not simply great literature. It is that. But it is more than that. It is breathed out by God himself. It's God's book. To read the Bible well, you must open the doors of your soul to the same spirit the apostles and prophets were inspired by when they wrote it. So think of this. The reason it can be alive is because the spirit that inspired it inhabits it and lives in your heart. And so that's why when you read the Bible, there can be an immediate presence of God. Because there's this deep continuity, this connection, and it is this. So in order to read the Bible well, you must open your soul. You must open your heart to the one who makes himself lovingly available in his word. And remember this, not always, but often, God stops in front of closed doors. To read the Bible well, you must have an open heart. When you read the Bible, when you open your heart in faith to God, um, one of the church fathers said, you risk the privilege of a visit from Christ. When you read it well, with an heart, with a humble heart, open in faith. You risk the privilege of a visit from Jesus. That's good. Now, it's not enough to read the Bible. You know, I... Uh, I have kind of a, an academic side of my life um, where I write and I go to conferences and I'm on a few boards of academic kind of institutes. And uh, in November every year, I go to the Society of Biblical Literature. It's the largest gathering of biblical scholars in the world. It moves all around the United States. This year, we'll be in San Francisco. It'll be like 5,000 people. And I can tell you that there are people who spend their lives reading the Bible who don't believe it. It's like spending your life in a marriage and not really believing that the person loves you. It will gut it of what it was meant for. It's not enough to read the Bible. In fact, reading the Bible well so that God works powerfully in your life takes discipline and practice. And there's definitely a mystery to it. And there's something mystical about how God works in the Bible. But throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, throughout the church fathers, throughout church history, there is a common way of reading the Bible well in private. Now, a guy by the name of Guigo II, in the latter half of the 12th century, he wrote down... Here's how in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the fathers in church history, here's how people who read the Bible in private well, here's how they do it. And he identified four phases, and it's still acknowledged today to be, yep, that's it. Um, there's a fancy Latin word he wrote in Latin. It's called Lexio Divina. Um, he had a name like Guigo, so there was, you know, another language going on. I want to now talk, walk you through four phases of reading whenever you read the Bible in private if you want to read it well, if you want to read it to hear the voice of God. Now, look, um, those of you who are note takers and all, you're welcome to take notes. Also, um, the manuscripts of my sermons are always online, and uh, all of this is written there, what I'm about to tell you. So, first of all, the first phase is to s slowly 
and without hurry and with discipline and with full engagement, read the scripture. Slowly, unhurried, discipline. It takes a tremendous amount of discipline to bring yourself to attention on something. Discipline. Fully engaged. Your mind's not running a thousand places. And sometimes it takes reading a lot of scripture to get to that moment. Sometimes it takes a lot of prayer to get to that moment. Slow, unhurried, disciplined, fully engaged reading of scripture in an atmosphere of silence and calm. Inner calm. This is what that lady's doing in that picture. Can you see it? She's there. Her hands are open. Calm, not in a hurry. Slow, a few words at a time. Pausing in attentive reflection. That's the first phase. If you don't get there, you will never, ever read the Bible well. You've got to do that. That's why evangelicals call it a quiet time. That's really what that word quiet is getting at. It's not, it's that there's a quietness in your soul, a slowness, an unhurriedness. That's the first phase. The second phase is that you begin to slowly and patiently meditate your way into the world of Scripture. Slowly and unhurried, you begin to meditate your way into the world of the passage. One Catholic bishop says this way. He says, the heart is the mouth in which Scripture is chewed and ruminated. See, that's the second phase, is that in your heart you begin to chew on it. You begin to meditate on it. You begin to worm your way into the world of that passage. You ponder each word. You try to suck out of it like a great piece of steak, right? Or a great crawfish. Or really good raw oysters. Well, those you kind of just let them slide down. You try to extract every morsel that you can out of every... And you're doing this in order to grasp, in order to imprint on your mind what, what's going on, this world, in order to taste its sweetness and find joy and nourishment for your soul. Somebody once said, in this second phase, you move from looking at the words to entering the world of Scripture. You begin to sense that Scripture is a living tissue. All of a sudden, you read something else in the Bible that reminds you of this word or this, this thing that's happening, and you begin to think about that. Oftentimes in our small group, somebody will say, oh, that's like in this story, and then we stop and say, well, let's remember that story. And all of a sudden, Scripture just kind of begins to bloom all around you as a verdant garden. You're, you're, what you're doing is through your one passage, you're looking at the world of Scripture, and you're hearing the world of Scripture through your one passage. Now, this means you've got to know the Bible. You've got to get it in you. You've got to memorize it. You've got to read it, read it, read it, read it, so that as you're meditating, you can begin to fire off these connections, and you can begin to worm your way into this world. You begin to sense that Scripture is a living tissue. It's a connected, coherent Whole, it's not some collection of inspired little, you know, poor Richard's almanac kind of sayings on a string. The more you do this, the more the Bible will become second nature. Um, they said of Saint, of, um, it wasn't Saint Jerome. I can't think of his name right now. He's a third century Catholic Pope. It was said that he did this so much with scripture that for him, scripture was no longer, he was no longer in scripture a tourist, but it was his native soil. 
He didn't have to ask directions. for that it's, and, it, and it even said that he stopped even reading the Bible because he had done this so much. It had just imprinted itself on his mind that he would just surf his way through Scripture. The third phase is as you do that, you will suddenly find yourself running to God. Running to God in meditative prayer. (laughs) It's like as you're doing that, all of a sudden God touches your heart and your heart leaps like, like a colt. It jumps. And suddenly you're repeating to God what God was saying to you. Suddenly scriptures become instead something you're reading. It's becoming something you're saying back to God. Something you're praying and you're saying it to God. In, in other words, scripture is not only the center of our listening. It becomes the center of our responding. That's the third phase, the fourth phase, the mountaintop. Finally, it's when you're filled with wonder. And whereas before you were talking to God, all of a sudden you are speechless. Because you are impoverished in the riches of the intimate presence of God. There are moments between a husband and a wife where words are a violation. There are moments of immediate intimacy that we reach in our praying with God when we are hushed before Him. You see, the journey of Scripture... What did I start? Started out saying that in Scripture we expect to see and hear God. What happens when God shows up and you have an immediate sense of His presence? That's the goal. Remember, Scripture is a means. It it is the vehicle through which God is working. This is the end of the journey. It's when with an astonishing intimacy, the Word of God is actually addressed to you. And you'll find that as you slowly read and then meditate, And then pray in Scripture. Deep calls to deep. And that personal part of you that we call your soul, your soul surrenders itself when it recognizes the voice of love that first loved. That's the four phases Guigo talked about and people who read the Bible well still see. Now look, I'm not trying to... This is not a technique. One of the worst things you can do to any relationship is try to bring a technique to it. Yeah. Relationships are inefficient. And technique belongs to methods, belongs to science. It does not belong to the realm of relationships. Do not turn this into four steps, four steps going up some ladder. (laughs) Eugene Peterson, a great modern day author, he says... Each phase calls forth to another and then recedes to give place to another. None are in isolation from the other, but all are thrown together in a kind of playful folk dance. So you go, you read, you start to meditate, you start to pray, you pull back, you read some more, you meditate some. It's kind of this incredible dance. Each of the elements must be taken seriously. None of the elements can be eliminated. None of the elements can be practiced in isolation from the other. Now, this is intimidating. The Bible is a huge and complicated book and really hard to understand. But what I'm saying to you is that reading the Bible well doesn't require intelligence. It requires purity of heart, quietness of spirit, 
and practice. There are many people who are far less intelligent than any of us in this room who by practice and quietness of spirit and humility of heart and purity of soul read the Bible far better than us. Expect and anticipate an immediate and personal encounter with God. Fix your whole attention on the one who speaks and who should be answered like a child answer his father or mother. To be a healthy church, we need to fall in love with God and we need to fall in love with His Scriptures. We need to soak ourselves in Scriptures. We need to immerse ourselves in the Scriptures by constantly reading and reading well and studying and frequently turning to them. And keep at it. For some of you, you'll just start this when you're 20, 30, 40, 50 and you're going to be just like Shelby learning to speak. It will be a long, bumbling process. But what awaits you, my friend? What awaits me? You know what awaits us? Shalom. A life of flourishing. As God works powerfully in our lives. Let's pray.